At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 243 of Top Rope Nation. It could be somber. We're going to look at this more as a celebration of the life of one of the greats of professional wrestling, especially if you grew up in the 1990s. You couldn't help but be a fan of this guy. Of course, we're going to be talking about Scott Hall, a.k.a. Razor Ramon. Should be a lot of fun looking back at his career. My name's Ryan Drosty. I'm joined by Justin Joint. As always, I have two great guests on the line who I will introduce momentarily. Kyle Ross will not be with us tonight. We'll talk more about this here in a little bit, but Kyle did recently put out a bonus show on our Patreon show, our Patreon feed, which I hope you check out. Uh, but Kyle will be back next week. It's a busy time of the year for him with his real world job, but he did give us some notes with his thoughts on some of the topics we're going to be talking about tonight. So Kyle will still be involved just kind of indirectly. Uh, Justin Joint, first let me throw it to you. I mean, all things considered, how's your week going? Not too bad. I can't complain other than obviously, you know, the sad news of Scott Hall passing and the fact that assuming uh, Cody Rhodes was going to show up, I actually watched some WWE programming. So I'm poor, kind of upset poor about SOB. that. <laughs> a little upset about that. <laughs> I may have watched it if I was in town. I was actually in Wisconsin yesterday, so I couldn't watch it live. I was driving back. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, when I saw your message in the Facebook group, Justin, I was I was disappointed for you that you sat through all three hours and, and no Cody. But hopefully we can cheer you up tonight, Justin, because we got two great guests who I'm about to introduce. Number one, by way of the pro wrestling torch he has been a big supporter of ours for a while i've been on his show pro wrestling then and now over on the pw torch vip feed i'll be doing it again this weekend he also writes the AEW dynamite and rampage primers for the torch it is none other than the pilot himself mr frank pettiani frank welcome to top rope nation Hey, Ryan, uh, appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure. First time I am on uh, Top Rope Nation proper. So I've uh, been looking <laughs> forward to this and uh, always a pleasure to uh, always a pleasure to chat with you fellas uh, on and off. Uh, well, let's see on social media and here in video. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. Always very involved in our uh, our Facebook group, of course, interacting on social media for a long time. And you even called in. I think I yes. talked about this on the pod. Uh, last time out, you even called into our AEW Dynamite watch party over on the playback app uh, from 30,000 feet in the air. You were on a flight. You were not piloting the plane, Frank, but you were on the flight and you called in video and all and watched Dynamite with us. What yeah, an amazing, was, I mean, dedi- talk about dedication. That was awesome. <laughs> it uh, and, and it worked out. It, it all lined up like I uh, I picked up the trip. So a little 
a little bit pulling the curtain back on my job. Sometimes we have these trips where you fly somewhere and you deadhead back, meaning, you know, you're paid, but you sit in the back. You're not needed to fly. So I had picked this trip up a long time ago and it just happened to be in the same week that you were doing the, uh, the playback, I said, okay, please give me the airplane with the with the Wi-Fi that works over the water. Because a lot of our planes, <laughs> the uh, the new Wi-Fi's that they're installing actually work over the ocean. So I was coming back from San Juan and we're pretty much over the ocean the entire flight. Like we don't see land basically until we get to JFK. So I walked up to the plane. It was there and I was like, ah, yes, thank you. There's a little screen like when you walk in, when you see that yeah. screen, you know you got the good Wi-Fi. So I was psyched. I had my headphones and it worked. I mean, I got kicked off a couple of times, but it worked for a good it majority good. of the flight. So yeah, yeah. That's it was pretty good yeah, overall. Good. Yeah. So uh, patrons of the show, I'm going to talk more about Patreon in a minute. You're able to actually uh, access a video recording of those watch alongs. The only way to see those is on Patreon, um, but you can join us live if you're in our Facebook group. So if you look at the description of this video of the podcast feed, you'll see a link to our Facebook group. Make sure you get in that Facebook group because every time we do the watch parties, uh, I post it there on Facebook. And I mean, you can literally watch dynamite with us. It's like Twitch. If you ever watch people play video games on Twitch, you know where you see the feed of the game and then they're overlaid down in the corner. That's how it is. I mean, you watch TBS with us. You interact with us. We can bring you on stage. There's a chat room. It's a lot of fun. And our other guest tonight, he is there with us almost every single week as well on the playback shows. Now, uh, Justin, you've done his show uh, as well with me. Uh, Kyle's been on there a number of times. And I was very glad to hear that his podcast he might be changing the format a little bit but it's continuing on because i love what he is doing over at wrestling unplugged and undeniable it's a great show he's a great host one of the great new names in the wrestling media making his way up big supporter of top rope nation mr jesse velasquez welcome to top rope nation it's a grand introduction ryan mom I dad go above and beyond <laughs> go above and beyond for a guest man what can i say <laughs> It's it's an honor. I truly appreciate being here with three bastions of pro wrestling excellence. I'm really looking forward to this topic, even though, again, it might be a little somber, but we're going to definitely highlight the wonderful things about Mr. Scott Hall. Also, Kyle Ross, we miss you. Yeah, Kyle will be back. He, uh, As I said, he did this Top Rope Nation Extra bonus pod last week with some backstage updates of what's been going on with WWE and their WrestleMania 38 planning. Join the Patreon page, guys. We're getting close to our next goal where I can release my unheard interview with Bobby Heenan from way back in 2002. Never been heard by anybody. I'm going to release it when we get to 40 patrons. You're seeing the names of all the patrons across the bottom of the screen right now. Got to thank all of them for their support. So we're dropping bonus content over there all the time. Both of these guys are patrons, by the way. Thank you, Frank and Jesse, for your support. Appreciate that. We are going to be dropping a new episode of Top Rope Nation Classics next week, looking back on the 35-year anniversary of WrestleMania 3. Can't wait for that. Going to be a lot of fun. Myself, Kyle, and Justin. And, you know, if you don't have the five bucks a month to support us on Patreon, totally fine. But you can support us a number of ways for free. Leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you're here on YouTube watching us live stream right now, make sure to hit subscribe, 
turn that notifications bell on so that every time we go live, you get a notification and then you never miss a live show. If you're on the podcast feeds, you hear a little bit on delay, but join us live sometime. It's fun. Get involved in the chat. We're streaming right now on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're streaming on Twitter. We're on Twitch. We're on a number of live services. So if you're watching and you have thoughts on Scott Hall as we go and the topics that we're talking about, let us know in the chat so I can put it up on the screen and we can get you involved in the show uh, as we go. So with that said, let's start talking about Scott Hall. And I mean, there's a number of ways we could do this. We could kind of go linear through his life, talk about his rise to fame. Uh, We could talk about uh, you know, favorite moments of his career, favorite matches of Scott Hall's. I put out an article, by the way, today over on sescoops.com, seven must-see matches in the career of Scott Hall. Check that out. I think I want to just throw it around the horn before I kind of talk about his early life a little bit and ask you guys if you remember the first time you saw Scott Hall. And I'm, I'm going to go to Jesse first because I think based upon where you grew up, Jesse, and where Scott Hall was at during his career – you probably were the first of us to see Scott Hall. Explain. 1986, April 20th, Wrestle Rock 86 at the Metrodome. I think it seats 50-ish thousand, and there's about 20,000 sporadic fun fact. The post-show, or I believe like the next week's AWA syndicated show, I was on there for about three seconds. Big giant glasses, long hair. Don't have any anymore. So, (laughs) Scott Hall, as you may know him or you knew him in the WWF and WCW, looked completely different than what he did in his early stages. So, he, if you're familiar with Tom Selleck and the wonderful television show Magnum P.I., that's kind of where he got his gimmick from to start, Magnum Scott Hall. He eliminated the Magnum piece, which we might get into a little bit later, and he was in the AWA tag teaming with Kurt Hennig. Son of Larry the Axe. Larry the Axe and Vern Gagne, we went way back. I don't remember when the AWA exactly started, but Wrestle Rock 86 was the first memory that I have of him. Him and Kurt Henning teamed against the Long Riders. That would be Bill and Scott Irwin. Another fun fact that was Scott Irwin's last match. Wow. Yeah. As I believe he had, unfortunately, had brain cancer. Hmm. So if you are familiar with Wild Bill Irwin, Later on in WCW, I believe he opened up the Great American Bash 89 with Brian Pillman. And I think he was the goon in the WWF, if I recall. So, again, Scott Hall, strapping lad at the time, 6'7", yeah. 285, 290. He was a big, broad guy. And, again, a completely different presentation from what we got to know and see him as in WWF and WCW. So that whole card was phenomenal there were a lot of legends on it i recommend you go look out look it up on like pro wrestling fandom or cagematch.net just to see the full ambiance of it all but that was my first memory of scott hall just a wonderful promotion awa was because you had the road warriors that were just up north brooklyn center about 20 minutes they were billed from chicago but get this they actually (laughs) lived in irondale you had kurt Mm -hmm. hennig rick rude i mean uh barry darso known as smash crusher khrushchev so the lineage of Minnesota talent is just long. So do your due diligence and go back and check out some AWA stuff. There is a lot of timeless things that Bobby the Brain Heenan was there for a long time. Hulk Hogan, pretty much the ones that you knew from the 80s and early 90s, they likely were in the upper Midwest at one point in time. 
Yeah, it's it's incredible how much talent came out of that promotion. And yeah, Vern was a huge fan of Scott Hall, as we're gonna talk about. Like he wanted to build the entire promotion around him for a couple of reasons. And so we'll get to that here in a second. Frank, let me throw it to you. You've been watching wrestling a long time. Uh, I mean, you recently had Kyle on your show. You talked about how you know your time as fans has kind of overlapped a little bit. So when was the first time that you saw Scott Hall? So I didn't realize it actually until today watching the um, in preparing for this uh, for the show. I watched the Scott Hall video that they made for, um, I guess, at the time, the WWE Network. Uh, now, of course, on Peacock. And uh, they talked about a house show on September 11th, 1992. And I said, wait a second. I remember going to a house show in September of 92. And lo and behold, that was the show. And I distinctly remember him wrestling the macho man that night. Um, and just to kind of paint a picture, you know, Bret Hart was working Papa Shango. Ric Flair had just gotten the WWF title back. He worked the undertaker to a DQ, uh, Shawn Michaels wrestled like Virgil, something like that. So that's, you know, kind of a sign of September of 92. But, you know, I remember seeing this guy live after, of course, seeing him on TV, you know, all the vignettes, which I'm sure we're going to get into in a little bit. Uh, and his first match. And I remember just looking at this guy saying, man, this, this guy's going to be something, you know, there, there, there's something to brew in here. You know, we were coming out of the, how do you say it? The Hogan Federation years, you know, starting to move to a newer generation. And, uh, you know, you could tell uh, that he was going to, it's kind of a funny thing too. Not, not a big story, but I was listening to a show in 1992. I think it might've even ended late that year. But it'd be on at like three o'clock in the morning. Now, I think I got a few years on everybody in this room. So I was 18 at the time. Uh, and I remember like going out to like 12, one o'clock, whatever I was allowed to go out till, and then coming home, popping on my headphones and putting on sports radio, WFAN, for those listeners that are familiar. And uh, there was a show. It was Jody McDonald, uh, Rich Man Cuso. And I think Wade Keller checked in a couple of times on that show because he's worked with those guys. He told me. And uh, I actually knew about, they said, the Diamond Stud. Now, I wasn't familiar. I touched in AWA a little bit. You know, I watched, I dabbled in NWA, but I was primarily a WWF guy, you know, when I got started out. So, but I was vaguely familiar with the Diamond Stud. And they said, you know, he's coming to the WWF. So I was like, oh, okay. And then when I saw Razor, I put two and two together and I figured, oh, okay, this is the guy they're talking about. And you know, like I said, we'll get to the vignettes later, but I, I knew that, you know, this guy's going to be a player for a while. And lo and behold, uh, I was right. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, to circle back, September 92, the first time I saw uh, Razor and beating Macho Man, that was a big deal. That was yeah. really a big deal to me. Like when I saw Macho laid out and they were playing his music, I'm like, yeah, something's changing here. So, yeah. yeah. Well said. Justin Joint, your first time seeing Scott Hall. So it's definitely the first time I saw him because I didn't remember this until I, I, you know, like Frank really thinking about uh, Scott Hall's career and getting ready for this podcast. The first time I would have seen him would have been Clash of the Champions 17 in November of 91, uh, one of the all-time greatest shows in wrestling. But he had a match with Tom Zank and – 
I, I went back and watched the match because I, you know, I looked at the card and I saw he was on there. And I, I watched the match, and the reason I don't really remember him very much is because it's a minute and twenty four second match, and half of it is there in a tiny box while they're showing Sting get loaded up into the ab- ambulance after being attacked and being taken out of the card where, you know, he shows up later in the night to, to face Rick Rude and loses the U S title. But uh, yeah, he ended up getting kind of squashed in that match by Tom Zank. And that was kind of my first introduction to the diamond stud. And oddly enough, by the time he came into the WWF, I was kind of on my way out as a fan and I did not come back until WrestleMania 12 in 96. So I basically missed wow. his entire run. So my entire relationship with him is basically the WCW years. Um, wow. I didn't get to watch almost any of his matches until uh, the network came out outside of, you know, once I got back into wrestling, obviously I went back and, you know, I'd rent uh, WrestleMania 10 and, and SummerSlam, but yeah, I missed a, basically the entire Razor Ramon era. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't see him in WCW at all. So you got me beat. I mean, I was pretty young at the time. Uh, I was like eight years old when he debuted with WWF. So I, I didn't see him as the Diamond Stud or even before that as, what do they call him, Scott Gatorhall in 89, his brief run with the uh, NWA WCW. That's, Kyle said he saw him at uh, Great American Bash 89. That was the first time that he saw him. Uh, he was in a, like this big battle royal. I, I did not see that. I saw him. 92 93 but kind of like justin i was kind of in and out some of that was due to my age you know i was in elementary school but then 95 ish is when i really got back into wrestling hardcore and i mean i was watching it every single week at that point so that was towards the end of the wwf run so i have memories of him when he first started and then kind of like towards the end and then yeah like i i saw stuff in between but i was kind of going back watching the footage you know filling in the blanks and stuff um i will say Frank, you mentioned the the DVD they put out a few years ago. It is excellent. I bought the Blu-ray right when it came out. I haven't watched it in a while. You just watched it today. So as I kind of go through the story, if you have anything to add, just jump in. Feel free yeah. to interrupt me <laughs> as I go. Because I mean, some of this was some research I did today and everything. But I'm sure there was more details in the DVD that I don't remember because it's been a few years. Uh, but, you know, we can start kind of talk about his upbringing in the business and everything. By the way, uh, Scott Hall grew up, you know, in an army family. So he was born in Maryland. He moved around a lot as a kid. He actually went to high school, high school in Munich, West Germany at the time. And, uh, so his dad was in the army, like I said, and he ends up in Orlando and there's the famous story that really traumatized him. Understandably. So when he was working at a gentleman's club in Orlando called the original Dollhouse. And so he was bartending there and he talked about this. Uh, they did an E60 special on him a few years back. He talks about it on the DVD. Um, basically, there was an incident, I believe, over a girl. And there was a fight out in the parking lot between him and a customer. And as they were fighting, the man reached for a gun. And Hall recalls, you know, seeing him go for the gun and knowing it was going to be him or the other guy. So Scott grabbed the gun and he shot the guy in the head and the guy died. He killed the man right there in the parking lot at the dollhouse. And he was charged for second degree murder. Now he was obviously, it was self-defense. And so he was acquitted of the charges because there was a lack of evidence to convict him on that charge. 
Uh, but that led to a lot of emotional stress for him for many, many years, undiagnosed. Eventually, he was told he, he had PTSD from the situation. I mean, how could you not? And, you know, he was already predisposed to, I mean, like there was alcoholism in his family. So he was already predisposed to have those challenges. And we know later on, you know, he got really heavy into not just alcohol, but prescription drugs and all kinds of stuff. And he struggled with that for years and years. And, you know, at various times he would, he would get clean and clean up his act a little bit, but it's hard to, when you have that in your blood and you have experiences like that, it's very, very hard to stay clean. And that was the, that was the deal with Scott Hall. And so, I mean, from what I recall, Frank, on the DVD, he talks about how he realized eventually he was basically self-medicating because of that experience. Isn't that kind of what he says on there? Oh, I'll take it a step further. He was basically killing himself. Like, well, yeah, he admitted yeah. towards the end, towards the end of the DVD, uh, he was like, yeah, I could drink myself to death. Great. Uh, because without without saying it, I think he pretty much lost the will to live. You know, until he got involved with DDP and he helped him out and, you know, uh, DDP and Jake called him. And I mean, you could tell they, when you go back and watch a DVD, you could tell they were just worried. Like, you know, you can't do this. You know, it's not it's not worth it. But uh, yeah, something like that. I, I wa- watching the video, if I'm doing a 10,000 foot view, no, no dig at my job here. If I'm if I'm doing that, I think he never forgave himself for what happened in Orlando. I think it stayed with him his whole life. And, you know, <laughs> take it from me. When you carry weights like that, you know, and you don't deal with it, or you think you've dealt with it, and yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm not, no problem. No, you know, you you know, you know when you have overcome something. You know when you fully dealt with something. And I think he might've been lying to himself for a long time, thinking that he did, but he never did. I don't think he ever forgave himself. And I think he basically, he wanted to put himself in the ground, you know, with, without, mm-hmm. <laughs> without sugarcoating it. I mean, that's just the way it was, you know? And uh, he even said too, early on in the show, early on in the DVD that, you know, going to the WWF or getting involved in wrestling, um, I could be something that I'm not, you know? And I yeah. mean, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much every actor or actress or not every, but a lot I mean, heck, take a look at a guy like Robin Williams, you know, comedians, especially, yeah, comedians, especially like Mm. a lot of people go into, you know, acting, wrestling, whatever. So they don't have to be themselves. And it's sad, you know, because you watch these people on screen, they're larger than life. They're your heroes. You look up to them, whatever. And what's going on behind the scenes, eat what you're seeing on screen. You know, Robin Williams is a perfect example. But yeah, Scotty, you know, I, I. I'd like to think he forgave himself. Maybe he just got better at dealing with it because his friends were there for him. But, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll never know the answer to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, super difficult situation, obviously, that he had to grapple with for for many, many years, probably right until the end. And and you mentioned DDP, and you kind of saw some of that play out on the resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts when Jake was with DDP and scott hall was there i mean scott was knocking on death's door at that moment in time he was in a real bad way and what ddp did yeah what ddp did for him extended his life by several years i mean it was Mm -hmm. it was a pretty amazing turnaround to see how he was at that time we've all seen you know at the end the, the video clips of him at some independent shows that were really unfortunate 
uh, and the condition that he was in to get to a point where, you know, he was able to, you know, do the Hall of Fame, obviously, but then also like come out on the, the Raw anniversary show and do what he did. Because if we see how he went to DDP's house, that would have never been remotely possible. So that was pretty amazing. Uh, now, when he got into pro wrestling after the incident in Orlando, you know, he started hitting the gym really hard. I think that was a way for him to, you know, handle what had happened and, and try to separate from that whole situation. Um, he got into wrestling in Florida, uh, down in the Florida Territory, championship wrestling from Florida, training with Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Dusty sent him off to Mid-Atlantic, uh, working for Jim Crockett. He started teaming with Dan Spivey. They called him American Starship. Hall was Starship Coyote. Spivey was Starship Eagle. Uh, they worked Crockett's Mid-Atlantic Territory for a little while. Then they were sent off to Kansas City to work for Bob Geigel. That would have been the Central States Territory at the time and hall ended up staying in kansas city spivey went back to mid-atlantic and it was then that that scott hall made his way up to the awa as as jesse talked about in 1985 should have mentioned it was 84 when he got into in pro wrestling and it was january of 83 that the incident at the gentleman's club happened so by 85 he's in the awa and this is where he really started catching on you know achieving some notoriety mentioned um you know, the similarities to, to Tom Selleck in the 80s with the mustache and everything. And, and when he went up there and they started calling him Magnum Scott Hall for that reason. And then Big Scott Hall. Uh, Hogan, you know, Hogan was leaving. He had just left for the WWF. Lots of stars were leaving Vern Gagne's territory. And, you know, as Jesse mentioned, all these big stars that would come from the AWA. And Vern looked at Scott Hall. And Hall was a guy who they said was bigger than Hogan who actually had a better look than Hogan. Like he was better looking than Hogan. Mm -hmm. And Vern said, this is the guy that, you know, can replace Hulk Hogan as the territory's eventual world champion. And so first he was in the, he did the tag team thing with, with Kurt Hennig. That's where he actually won championship, uh, the AWA tag team championship with Kurt Hennig. I'm going to put a picture here on the screen. I believe there you go. You can see those guys. Great tag belts, by the way. I love those AWA tag belts. Looks like but, Magnum uh, TA, by the way, a little bit. Yeah, that yeah, that too. So Magnum PI, Magnum TA, yeah, TA is doing the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you can see like he's jacked. He looks great. He is better looking than Hogan, and you can see how Vern Gagne looks at this guy. Look how tall he is too. He's just as tall as Hulk Hogan. I mean, this is a guy who could replace Hulk Hogan in the territory, and this is around the time Jesse, where you saw him, so he would have looked pretty similar to that. You know, the right. one thing that. Scott Hall mentioned himself with Stone Cold Steve Austin was he was getting a lot of experience in the AWA. He was teaming a lot with Kurt Henning and Greg Gagne in main events against Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, and the likes. But the one thing that he mentioned that really stood out to me was that he was extremely green. He really hadn't worked much the prior two years. The, the big reason why was they said that he was too big to job and he... It, they just didn't want to put him in any matches because like the guy that looks like this shouldn't be jobbing this early, but we can't put you out there because you're too green. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times in these tag matches, he would just sit on the apron and get the hot tag clean house and end up either scoring the pin or at some point, you know, they would get him down. He'd tag right back out to Hennig and he would score the pin. So he gained a lot of experience just learning from the likes of Hennig, Ganya, and such growing up through the AWA. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I mean, he's learning he's learned the ropes a little bit. I think that Hall, you know, personally, if you could talk to him personally, he was a pretty charismatic guy, but it took took him a while to be able to get that charisma to come across on screen, really, until he was Razor Ramon. You know, we didn't see that actually happen. So he he's still learning his way, and like, how do I project that while I'm on television? AWA was a great territory. I mean, it was a great place to learn, no doubt, but Hall saw it saw happening what was going on like he saw it as a sinking ship which it absolutely was by that moment in time unfortunately you know it was on its way down and he kind of realized that he had to get out of there so he never had the world title uh he had shots uh he wrestled stan hansen he wrestled rick martell who would have a great match with on raw several years later which we'll probably talk about at one point in time but he he leaves and he ends up going to the nwa should mention he did have tryouts with the WWF um, before this, the first time in 1987, didn't get signed. He also had a tryout with the WWF in 1990. So it's in 89 that he first joins the NWA, and they call him Scott Gator Hall, leaning into that Florida background there. And there's really not much to talk about. This is where you know Kyle said that he saw him for the first time. Uh, he was in a two-ring battle royal at the Great American Bash in 89. But he ends up leaving by November. So he's only there a few months. And then through 1991, he works in New Japan. He goes over to Europe. He works in Germany. He had a, an extended run in Puerto Rico. And then in 91, he goes back to WCW, previously the NWA. And this is where they rebranded him as the Diamond Stud, which you will see on the screen here. There he is. With Diamond wow. Dallas Page. <laughs> and, and you can already see a lot of the elements of Razor Ramon already oh, yeah. coming to fruition here. Yep. Slick back hair. He's got the toothpick. Yep. You know, there you go. So they this talked is when you first saw him, the, Justin. Uh, in the DVD where the uh, he changed his look with the hair and, and everything like that. Like that was, you know, really uh, some of the key elements uh, to, you know, the formation of that character. And obviously it transposed over to uh, the WWF. Mm-hmm. So yeah, was this was the first time you saw him, Justin? You said Clash of the yep. Champions would have had this look. Yep, right and around so, this time period. Yeah. So, in the notes that Kyle sent in, because I, I wanted to get Kyle involved, he's a great guy with wrestling history, as all of our listeners know, but he couldn't make the show. But I really want to get his perspective on some of this. So I'm going to read some quotes from Kyle that kind of tie in with what we're talking about. So here, he was commenting on the Diamond Stud. He said this is when he would have first seen him. Um, he says, I think the tendency now, because he would go on to a big star, is to wonder why he wasn't a star during this run, especially since he was managed by DDP, who would also go on to be a big star. Kyle says, I think the honest answer is Hall just wasn't that good yet, nor was Paige that effective as a mouthpiece. He says, sometimes people just get better. And, you know, there was no real feuds of note for him as the diamond stud. There's maybe one match worth seeking out. It was on an old flair collection on the network. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's not a lot to look at from this run. So why do we think that is? Why did it not work out? Go ahead, well, a, a big part of it is opportunity. Obviously. I don't, I don't think, uh, the, the diamond mine, is that what they were called? Mm -hmm. uh, they, mm -hmm. I don't think they were given much op opportunity to succeed. I don't think he was really putting into any real positions to, have great matches or any great storylines. And I agree. He probably wasn't as good as he would eventually be in the ring, but we are talking about someone who, you know, he left 
WCW in early 92. And two years later, he had a five-star match. So some of that is just, I mean, he had to have talent at this point and he just wasn't able to show it. And then I think the other part of it is uh, a comfort level with your gimmick or with, you know, basically turning your personality up to 11. And I think that played another major role, almost more than anybody else in wrestling history did finding that right character bring out the best in Scott Hall. Mm -hmm. You guys have any thoughts on that? Why it didn't work out? Kind of agree. I mean, I was kind of poking my head into WCW at the time. And it's funny doing Super Bowl with Kyle recently kind of took a, a good picture of what was going on. I mean, it, you know, you had stables like the dangerous Alliance. Uh, I think the horsemen were broken up at that point. Uh, right. Because uh, Arn, I think Arn and Bobby Eaton were involved with the DA. So uh, they were rather than obviously flair was gone, but it seemed like there were a lot of other guys uh, mm-hmm. sort of in the way, you know, you had guys like Barry Windham, uh, a young Cactus guy, Jack. Cactus Jack, Ron Simmons. We might've heard of this guy, Steve Austin. I, I don't know if you guys heard of him, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, he was on the rise, obviously, um, you know, so there might've, it, sometimes it, it's just the luck of the draw. Now I can't really speak too much to WCW, but that's just the impression that I get, you know, I mean, uh, at the time he was there, Luger was still a big act sting. They were getting ready to put the title on him. So, you know, a lot of, um, extenuating, you know, Dustin Rhodes, uh, I think that was the time that Dustin and his father got back there. So, you know, a lot of guys in the way, um, and, uh, you know, had he stuck around longer, might it have worked out, you know, cause there were guys that were coming in from the WWF, you know, Rick Rude made his way back, uh, Ricky Steamboat, you know, so it looked like they were trying to expand. So who knows? It's an alternate universe, but, uh, as we'll probably talk about here, he certainly made the right decision. I mean, yeah, as you pointed out, there was no really upward trajectory for him during his time at WCW. Uh, and I think when he was basically out the door, they were going to put him in the dangerous Alliance to replace Zabisco. But, uh, I mean, they were already at the end of their rope yeah. at that point. And one thing I'll say, too, before uh, Jesse, um, DDP, and, and I talked about this with Todd Martin over on the uh, on my uh, on my show, because uh, we went back and looked at, I think it was Fall Brawl 96, and DDP had wrestled, um, I think oh, it, was, it was Chavo in the opening match. And he was hitting his stride but he really wasn't as big yet as he would be. Like he was one of those guys like fine wine. He fermented later. You know, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't really hit his stride till about 97 when he started getting involved with the NWO, started getting involved with Savage. That was a big feud for him, you know? So I think it's, it's easy to go back uh, knowing what we know about DDP and say, Oh, Hey, you know, why didn't it work out in 91? Well, DDP really hadn't, um, hadn't flourished yet at that point. So probably led to them really just kind of being lost in the shuffle. And, uh, you know, going back to the, uh, the DVD, you know, he even said, if I'm going to job, I want a job in a good place. I want a job in the WWF, you know, I want to make the money. So, you know, that's what ended up, uh, that's what led him to make the jump. Frank, you had mentioned Barry Windham. That's actually who Scott Hall first talked to to get into the wrestling business, which is a pretty crazy story in itself. Oh, wow. And that's that's how they linked arms with. That's how we ended up uh, linking arms with Dusty Rhodes. 
Yeah, met him in 84 in Florida and just saying, hey, I want to become a pro wrestler. Met Barry Windham and the rest is history. It's pretty cool. Uh, Brian Pillman was another name back then in the early 90s, and he was obviously getting a huge push at the time. I think they had him in the U.S. title picture for a little while before they put him back with Liger, just the incredible matches in itself. I oh. think I think Diamonds would have been a huge... Um, I, I think Diamond Stud would have been a pretty solid opponent for Sting in mm-hmm. the in the world title picture. I think again, maybe not enough, maybe not enough experience. Still, still kind of soaking everything in. It took him, like you guys alluded to, a long time for him to finally just something just click. The gimmick yeah. I think was a lead in to, to Razor Ramon. Diamond Stud was just kind of that little tweener, that little bridge to get. To Razor Ramon, so kind of the learning on the job here in WCW might have been the reason. And I think too, what we we uh, should not fail to mention when he was there with DDP, you had uh, Jim Hurd running the show. Not exactly the guy you want leading the ship. And then uh, they went to K. Um, what's his name? The Kip Fry. I was going to say, mm-hmm. well, K. Allen, K. Allen Fry. And uh, you know, Kyle and I talked about that, and Kyle, uh, you know, said that at least he tried to learn. Uh, you know, because he was an attorney or something like that. But, yeah. you know, when you don't have leadership at the top that can really spot talent and understands wrestling talent, you know, guys like that might not get through. And, uh, you know, obviously when he went to the WWF, he was able to uh, to shine. Yeah, I think some of that you alluded to it with, you know, the training on the job kind of thing. Think about the trajectory of his career. Like he worked some small territories early but like he was in the AWA within a couple of years and you know that was a pretty sizable promotion with television and stuff and then he goes to the NWA and he's he's out for a little bit and then he's back in WCW so he was in front of a lot of viewers very early on he's just kind of this is when you would want someone kind of work in the indies you know learning their way he was definitely still learning like I alluded to earlier trying to get that natural charisma that he had to come across on screen and he starts doing with the diamond stud but I think, yeah, as you guys said, the promotion was flawed itself. And so I don't know that they could have led him to greener pastures. I think I think the gimmick could have maybe worked, but they didn't they didn't have, for example, anything in place like what the WWF had when they brought him in with those incredible Razor Ramon vignettes. I mean, just so memorable. That automatically made him seem like a big deal. Of course, the way he debuted made him seem like a big deal. So let's get into that. So in 92, he gets the break with the WWF. He meets with Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson. And like he, he thinks it's a joke. He loves the movie Scarface. And he starts quoting Scarface. And there's the line in Scarface about say goodnight to the bad guy. And of course, of course, you know, say hello to my little friend and the stuff that everybody knows. And apparently, neither Vince or Patterson had ever seen Scarface or even heard about it. And so as... As Scott starts quoting this movie, they think this guy is a genius and they can't believe the ideas he has. And so <laughs> he just leans into it and like, yeah, let's go with it. You know, it's going to be this this Cuban immigrant who thinks that uh, there's big, you know, big money to made be made here in the United States. And they want to come up with a, a name for him. And it was Tito Santana that came up with the name Ramon. And then Vincent Pat came up with Razor. And so he's Razor Ramon and, you know, he's basically cosplaying Scarface and, you know, it's not the only time in pro wrestling history that people have got inspiration from movies. Uh, But my God, I mean, those, those vignettes are so memorable. I'm going to throw some pictures up here on the screen from a few of them. 
You know, there's the one where he's in the restaurant. Really good stuff. Yelling at the waiter, throwing the stuff off the table. You know, you got him cruising around in his car. I mean, do you guys have any of these that really stand out to you? Because I, I kind of remember seeing him at the time and like he seemed this just made him seem larger than life already. You know, like coming in, you want to, you want to see this guy. Um, anyone feel free to jump in here. The one thing that really stood out to me was, and I think he, it was pretty repetitive in the first three or four vignettes was he wanted to teach you lessons in machismo. Machismo was his word for the first, mm-hmm. I would say, three to four months of WWF programming. And that might have been what led to the feud with Randy Savage going forward. But just super, again, very chill, cool. You almost, in a sense, at a young age, you you, you looked up to him almost not as an idol per se, but you're just like, I kind of want to be that guy. I, I think that was something that like really stood out to me from a, from a Scott Hall perspective as a character in Razor Ramones, especially since, I mean, I was, what, 12, 13 years old. I had seen Scarface, and at the time, it, was, it left a very big impression on me. So for him to kind of cosplay that character and put his spin on it in the pro wrestling world was just phenomenal. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing that when, you know, the right wrestler finds the right character, and they, especially in, the, in this instance, it just completely unlocked all of Scott Hall's just natural charisma. And as you already said, I mean, he was just, pardon my French, he was just fucking cool. And even when when he went on to WCW and just continued to be Scott Hall, he was just always cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he always seemed like the coolest guy in the room. Absolutely. I mean, he's just one of those guys who was so easy to imitate. Like, we'll talk about some of this, but I just... You know, growing up as a teenager in the 90s, he was like the perfect guy for TV. Just the way he acted, the way he slicked back his hair, the way he threw the toothpick, the quotes, you know, say hello to the bad guy, you know, hey, yo, <laughs> everyone does that. I've, I've told the story on the show before, I know, but like over the last, I don't know, 25 years, 90% of the conversations that I've had with my father on the phone begin with, hey, yo. Like that's, that's the first thing I say to my dad when he picks up the phone. We've done it since the nineties. Like my dad loved Scott Hall. I loved him. He was so quotable. And it's like, you call someone on the phone. Hey, yo, you know, we would do that imitating him. We still do it. Like I, just a few weeks ago when I called my dad, Hey, yo, what are you up to? Like, that's just what we did. And you do that to people in the halls at school, the, the walk that he did with his arms out and stuff. I mean, he was just pop culture. Truth, yeah. Truthfully. I can't tell you how many times I did that walk. I can't tell you how many times. So at the time I was working at the, uh, I was working at JFK. I wasn't flying yet, but I'd walk into the office. We had a bunch of guys that were wrestling fans and I'd walk in and I go, you know, and I do that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my friend Bill and I used to hang out. Uh, we used to hang out at this bar, Tequila Rocks. We knew the bartender, you know, we had like 10 drinks. We paid for two and, uh, she was great. She would, okay, we want the Mets game on that TV. We want Nitro on that TV. We want Raw over there, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. And that was the setup. And I think for about four or five years, all we did was, hey, yo, anytime we called each other <laughs> you know, to get together. Karaoke, hanging out at karaoke. We grabbed the mic before we'd sing a song. Hey, yo, survey time. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's how it was. But in all seriousness, you know, I, I think – there's something, and, and to give a shout to our friend Zach Haydorn uh, over at the Torch, you know, there's something to the art 
of his presentation, you know, and especially when you saw those vignettes, the way he was dressed, he was always dressed very well with the jewelry, the fancy cars, whenever they're doing something like that, they're signaling for you, at least back then in the nineties, they're signaling for you that this guy is going to be a big deal. You know, this guy is going to be something, you know, not stupid, like Duke the Dumpster Drossy or T.L. Hopper or whatever the crap they were running back then. <laughs> the like, stalker, speaking of the Barry st- Windham. God, <laughs> that, 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 that guy, the gimmicks they tried to come up with, with that guy. But anyway, you just knew, you know, based on the way those vignettes run or ran, you knew that he was going to be something big. And look, putting him into a feud right away with the macho man. Cause I don't really yeah. remember back then. I mean, they do it now all the time, but usually newcomers, there was a progression, you know, you worked a bunch of stiffs, you built yourself up then you built up to a match at a pay-per-view or something like that. I mean, they threw him right in there against the macho man. Okay. And what did he debut August of 92? He's main eventing a pay-per-view in November. All right. Yeah. And this is 92. This isn't this isn't Sheamus, you know, coming up and, and getting a title match a month later. I mean, this is this is a completely different time. So you knew um, you, you knew what they had in mind uh, for Razor and give credit to Vince. And I know we make fun of him for his booking and right, really so. But sometimes he just knows with somebody. There are some guys that aren't going to get over without some kind of gimmick. And there are some guys that can get over without, you know, like Bret Hart. You guys are big Bret fans. Bret didn't really have to have a gimmick, right? He was the hitman, but still, he was Bret Hart. He was himself. You know, I don't know that he would have gotten over as Scott Hall in the WWF, but as Razor Ramon with the character that they had in mind, you know, a little takeoff on the Scarface uh, character, you knew that, you know, it had the potential to work. And lo and behold, it, it was, it was, just the right amount of over the top character without going overboard with it. A great, very smooth, very smooth, mm-hmm. slick character. So, so you mentioned August of 92. He has his first televised match, August 8th of 92 on WWF superstars against Paul Van Dale. And this was mentioned in the chat by Adam. Uh, yeah. Carmela's dad. Yep. The yep. father of the current, yeah. WWE, a women's star, Carmela. Her father wrestled Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, in his first match with the WWF. And then at the uh, at the September 1st TV tapings in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Hall gets involved in the finish of the Randy Savage-Ric Flair match and costs Randy Savage the championship. And yes, this is what... This was what leads to, you know, you thinking that he is a big guy. You know, like, he's a big deal. You had the vignettes, but when you're involved in an angle... With Macho Man Randy Savage, you know, at that point, then you know this guy's a, is a as a big effing deal, right? So like that's how you debut somebody to make you know he's going to be significant at this point. So yeah, Kyle had mentioned in the notes, how come? Why do some wrestlers who get a series of vignettes get over and others don't? Something specific that helped Razor's case was him costing Savage the WWF title against Flair. Immediately made him an impact player. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the plan was that Hall would tag with Flair to take on Macho and Warrior, uh, the ultimate maniacs at Survivor Series 92. But Warrior got released, ends up being uh, Hall and Flair taking on Macho and Mr. Perfect. Uh, they lose via DQ. 
And I mean, then he's continued to be pushed forward by January of 93. He's wrestling Bret Hart at the Royal Rumble for the WWF Championship. Now, originally, that was going to be Bret versus the Ultimate Warrior was the plan. But since Warrior had been released, Razor gets the shot. And we've talked about this match on the podcast before. I really like this match a lot. I didn't have it in my top seven in the article I wrote today over at SE Scoops, but it's it would be in my top ten of favorite Scott Hall matches. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on the Royal Rumble '93 uh, match itself. It was it was a you know a tough spot for him to be in as a new guy, but I thought he he rose to the occasion. I also really love the poster for Royal Rumble '93. By the way, if you guys remember that, with like half of each of their faces on the front, with like the the sharpshooter image over the top, I think it had or something like that, but. Yeah, uh, Sacramento, I believe, Royal Rumble 93. Anyone have any memories of that match? I had my, uh, we had family over. We did the Italian thing. We did the sauce and everything like that. And um, my uh, little personal note, my baby cousin was three at the time. He is now 33 with two kids of his own. Where the hell does the time go? But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I remember this pay-per-view and... You know, I, I watched the match back today, actually. I, I watched it because it was, it was one of the matches that stuck out to me. And it wasn't a great match, but it was good. I mean, for mm-hmm. a guy that, you know, only came in, you know, in August, you know, going back to that. Yeah, there you go. Um, it was the poster, yeah. Y- y- you know, for him to hang with Brett uh, at that time, I, I, I thought they worked really well together. And I thought it was smart to put some kind of an angle on it, you know, because he was um, – he was taunting Brett's family mm-hmm. uh, in the run-up to the show. So to put that little bit of a storyline behind it uh, was a smart thing because, you know, I'm not sure that they were totally confident in him having that title match. So to have that story kind of covered for that a little bit where he could taunt the family, you know, while they were at ringside, you know, add a little uh, add a little spice to the match, uh, you know, because otherwise at that time, a Brett Razor Ramon match, why would anybody care? You know, Brett's going to win. Razor's not mm-hmm. winning the title. So, you know, I thought they handled it pretty well. But, um, you know, I thought it was I thought it was fine. I thought it was, uh, you know, something that you could watch and uh, and enjoy and just see how the two uh, how the two styles work together. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about we've talked about Brett's first title run being a little bit underwhelming. But when you look at his pay-per-view opponents, maybe not so much mania, but you know, working Sean at Survivor Series, which at the time didn't feel as big of a deal as it would a few years later. You're like, oh yeah, those guys wrestled at Survivor Series 92 uh, and they had a really good match. And then he's working Razor at the Rumble. Yeah, I've I've always liked the match. Um, Razor would get better as time went on. He's still pretty new here, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun one. Check it out if, if you haven't seen it. I know I mentioned it to Kyle one time on the show and he was like, I don't really like that match. And then he went back and watched it and he was like, yeah, it was actually better that I remember it being. And I agree with you, Frank. I like the tie-in with the Hart family. I believe, I haven't seen it in a few years, I think they show an interview filmed with Razor like before the match where he was like up in a box at a Kings game or something. And he's still yes. like running down the hearts. And that, that was yeah. kind of a cool look for a promo. And he's up there in the luxury box. But yeah, so he does that. He's got the big shot against Bret Hart. And uh, then at Mania 9, he works against Bob Backlund, which is a, it's a weird booking because uh, Razor is supposed to be the heel. But the fans there in Vegas are clearly chanting for him during during the uh, the match. A but shock. I, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't Bob want to Backlund, Bob, Backlund. Bob Backlund in 93. Not getting cheered. <laughs> Jeez, I'm surprised. 
But I think like from January to May, there's just not a whole lot to talk about. But then, of course, you get to May 93 and it's the famous match against one, two, three kid. Uh, I mean, it's only like a two minute match or something like that. But it's just great booking. And also this gets into another side of Scott Hall where he just he never really had a problem putting guys over. And that's where he differed from the other guys in the clique. Everybody knows about Sean. We're very critical on Hunter on this show. What? Kevin didn't <laughs> Kevin shocked. didn't like to Kevin didn't like to put over guys either. You know. Uh but here, Razor, like he puts over Waltman and you know, he does it. He's he's not uh he's not being he's not doesn't have like ulterior motives or anything like that. He's like, Yeah, I'm gonna help make this guy. And it's it's great booking because in the end it, it helps turn him face where it had seemed like people mentioned WrestleMania nine. We're just dying to cheer this guy. Like, how could you not want to cheer him? He was so cool. So they lean into that. And you in, know, the, in, the whole in a thing promotion that doesn't have a lot of cool characters too, by the right. way, especially at, 93. At time, yeah. At a time where they're running frigging doink the clown out there. <laughs> so yeah, like over the course of a couple of months, they, you know, he loses the kid in, in may. And then like gradually he starts getting more respect for the one, two, three kid. And eventually, like Ted DiBiase steps in and he's making fun of Razor that he lost to this, you know, short little new guy. And so it leads to DiBiase and Razor working at SummerSlam 93. That's actually Ted DiBiase's last match with the WWF. Mm -hmm. So anything, anything from that period, January to the fall, before we get into the Michaels stuff that you guys have any comments on or in your notes at all? I'll backtrack just a hair to... Look at the success that he was being groomed for. Again, we mentioned the whole being green or inexperienced, I'd say, for the first part of his career. But right away, in high-profile matches, you're getting thrown in there, teaming with Ric Flair against Macho Man and Kurt Hennig. You're then thrown into a feud with Bret Hart. You then get thrown into a mania match with Bob Backlund, a a legend. Granted, he's past his prime, but you're going to learn something from Bob Backlund. Mm -hmm. And then... The coolest thing about this one, two, three kid match was, yeah, he, he, and this is something he's, he's even said himself. He's like, I'm extremely selfless. I'm in this business for a couple of reasons. One is to make money. And at the time he even said it was to just to find women. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was the whole premise. He, he wanted to be a super popular guy in Florida and he was like, Hey, I can just turn it global. So, but he even asked, he's like, kid, what's your, what is your move? He said, moonsault. It's like, all right. We're that's what we're gonna do, and that was just that was the story in itself. It was a well, I think it was like a four minute match on Raw, and it was designed to get Razor over, and it ended up getting them both over. Just mm-hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. Was has it come out? Uh, was that Razor's idea to lose that match, or maybe was that Vince booking? It was. It was actually Pat Patterson's idea. Oh. Okay. And and Scott Hall, but Scott Hall was perfectly fine with. It. He's like. Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll do it, and that's when they had the conversation about the move and what direction to take the match. Mm-hmm. I think that night, on that night, one, two, three, kid got over, but Razor Ramon was truly born that night. Mm. Like it was all systems go for Razor from there because you kind of knew. I I'm not sure I was a hundred percent sure he was turning babyface, but him taking that loss, I think a lot of people probably not even thinking about it, saw that he was willing to put people over and he was willing to be part of a story, you know, and that helped create a new character, but another character firmly got on the map in, uh, in Razor. Yeah. 
So yeah, as, as you go into the fall, you know, now we're going to get towards that, uh, that first IC title run. Now, Razor would win the IC title on four occasions with the WWF. Uh, but after defeating Ted DiBiase at SummerSlam, you go into the fall. Michaels has been stripped of the IC title due to a suspension. Uh, they said on television it was because he hadn't been defending the belt. Uh, but it was it was due to a suspension. So they have this battle royal. And the rule is that at the end of the battle royal, the last two people left are going to wrestle for the IC title. It ends up being... Razor Ramon taking on Rick Martel, who we mentioned earlier, who he had worked way back in the AWA. And so the two of them have this match. It's a it's a very, very good match. I had it on my article today as another one worth checking out. Not in my top seven, but probably in the top ten. Uh, so they have this a match on October 11th, 93 on Raw. Check it out. Great match. Razor becomes the IC champion. And eventually this is going to lead to the most famous match of his career, Sean returns. Sean claims to be the real IC champ. Razor's the new IC champ. And so it's going to be the whole champion versus champion scenario. WrestleMania 10, the famous ladder match at Madison Square Garden. And so there had been one ladder match in the WWF before in the summer of 92. Brett and Sean worked that one over the IC title. Uh, it was on the Smack'em Whack'em home video. It was at like a primetime wrestling taping. But not many people had seen it. So this wasn't the first ladder match in WWF, but it was the first one on a big stage, and it was the one that set the tone. No doubt about it. I'm sure everyone here listening has seen the match. Iconic five stars in the Observer from Meltzer. It was voted match of the year in 94, which there was a lot of really good matches in 1994, so that's a huge honor. Uh, just I just watched it again tonight with my kids who had never seen it, and they were completely invested in this match. And, you know, it's just... The psychology of the match is so good. It's not like what you see in razor, uh, razor in ladder matches today, you know, with high spot after high spot after high spot, but the way it has worked. So I'm, I'm going to go to Kyle's comments here. He talks about how Flair once said that Michaels went out and wrestled a ladder and that's Ooh. completely, completely unfair. Uh, Kyle writes, had Sean gone out and done a look at me routine against a lesser star, the match may not have been as big a deal. Sean lost the match. So uh, Frank, I think you had raised this point maybe in the Facebook group. He said to Frank's point about WrestleMania 10 compared to the SummerSlam 95 ladder match that they had. Kyle says he gives uh, Mania 10 five stars and the SummerSlam one four and three quarter stars. He says, I know some consider SummerSlam 95 better, even if it's less famous. But Kyle says, as far as comparing them to the TLC matches, look at it like this. And I thought this was really good. He writes, Sean and Razor did for the ladder match what Sean and Taker did for Hell in a Cell. TLC did for ladder matches what Foley Taker did for Hell in a Cell. That being said, an impossible bar to top bump-wise. Absolutely. You know, TLC changed the game for ladder matches. And everyone expected more and more and more. So when you watch this one today, you're like, oh, I mean, there's some, there's some big bumps you know, like Sean goes off the top of the ladder and everything, but like, it, you know, of course they hit each other with the ladder. Uh, Sean rides the ladder down on Razor, but it's it's nothing like what we see today, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it was the first one. It was a great story. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a five star match all around. Um, I'm sure you all have thoughts on this. I'll go to Justin first. My co-host, Justin, your thoughts on Mania 10. Saw it years after the fact, 
when it was uh, very hyped up when I watched it and it lived up to the hype unbelievably mm-hmm. to me at the moment. I was expecting, you know, one of the greatest matches of all time. And, and I, I saw it and I didn't see the SummerSlam one until even years, years after that. And, and I agree. I think this one is slightly better. I agree with everything you said. Um, if you got a good story, you, you don't need a, a million death spots to have a great match. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's damn near perfect. One thing I'll say, just kind of comparing the two, because it just kind of feels natural. We haven't got to 95. But when you look at the two, I think when you get, like, as you get to the finish, like, 95 is maybe a little better, but the finish is screwed up a little bit on 95, where, like, Sean can't get the belts down, and it takes him a couple of tries, and that takes away from it a little bit. Um, the the 95 match has more in the way of, like, eye-popping bumps, like Sean takes the suplex to the outside on SummerSlam 95 that is like in insane spot. Like he gets suplexed from the ring to the outside. And like as he's going over, Razor just like drops him and he falls to his back and he like his leg hits the guardrail a little bit. It's a crazy bump. And there's more like bumps off the ladder in that match, too. So like if you watch that with 2022 eyes, it's it, it appears a little more impressive until you get to the finish and then it's kind of kind of gets messed up a little bit. It's it's an excellent match, like top 10 match of the 90s, I would say. Um but like that's why I would I would rank 10 a little bit ahead. It's it's more historically significant. WrestleMania, The Garden, the first one, you got the splash by Shawn off the top that everyone's seen that picture a million times, you know. Uh, the story with the two IC titles, I'll put the picture up here on the screen of Razor as he was victorious. But uh I mean they're they're very very close, but I would go with Mania 10 by a hair. Uh, Jesse, go to you. Your thoughts on WrestleMania 10. The psychology of it was great. They sold body parts throughout the ladder matches. You really don't see that in modern day. I would say maybe mm-hmm. in the last three to five years, like you all mentioned, it's just high spot after high spot after high spot. And that gets lost. I mean, it the, the whole psychology just gets lost in the shuffle. So I appreciated, I watched it yesterday morning with my son in my lap and eight and a half months old and his eyes I swear were glued to that screen the whole time so I he's not going to remember it but in the next five years I'm we're going to rewatch it again and I'm sure he's going to enjoy it a hell of a lot more but I really don't have much more to say about the match other than the fact that yeah it definitely lived up to the hype and once again Razor is in with a phenomenal worker and here here comes that here comes that leap to superstardom yeah Frank now you're in the area did you attend WrestleMania 10? And if not, why not? No, I didn't. Um, and honestly, I didn't even really think about it. <laughs> you know, I was, how old was I at the time? I was 20. Uh, so I'm trying to think. I mean, the only one that I could have, well, I could have asked my parents to go. I could have asked my uncle to go. I ended up going to my uncle's house uh, to watch the pay-per-view. But uh, yeah, I didn't have the uh, I didn't have the mentality that I have today, because if there's a pay-per-view nearby, (laughs) I'm certainly going to go. Or if, you know, there's a pay-per-view in my travels, I actually attended Survivor Series 2018. I was on a uh, Los Angeles overnight. I picked it up like just by happenstance. Like I didn't intend it. And I'm like, wait a minute, Los Angeles. I was like, oh, God, Survivor Series. Anyway, I digress. Uh, (laughs) um, No, I think for me and and. I don't want to dig too much into 95 because I know we haven't gotten there yet. I think it's just more of a personal 
choice, but that has nothing to do with what I think of the ladder match at 10. The ladder match at 10 is phenomenal. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just, I prefer uh, the 95 match, but also 90, 94 was kind of an odd year for me. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm a little biased uh, in that sense, but uh, no, the, um, it's your guy's point. And I just want to highlight that the psychology uh, that went into that, you know, you had a guy that claimed to be the intercontinental champion versus the guy that was actually the intercontinental champion, um, you know, fighting for what they both, you know, felt they deserved. And uh, I don't buy Flair's comments at all. I, I you know, uh, yeah. I, I don't think he wrestled the ladder and, um, you know, well, we'll get to we'll get to ninety five. Why I like that a little bit better, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's ten. It just it it set the standard, and I wish, I wish in today's WWE we didn't have a calendar dictate the fact that we have to have a ladder match. And you guys have talked about that a lot on your shows. It just takes away because you know we got to have spots, and you know we got to have a suplex onto the ladder. Somebody's got to throw the ladder. Somebody's got it. Just it just doesn't resonate anymore. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So not, yeah. Someone had mentioned in the chat. Adam, I think, had mentioned in the chat. Doesn't he walk under the ladder? Yes, he does. And then at ninety-five, he goes up to the ladder, but he walks around it during his entrance. So both times with the ladder in the entrance way, uh, he he toys with the ladder a little bit. But yeah, at the garden, he walked underneath the ladder. You know, the whole bad luck thing. So yeah, I mean, through the rest of ninety-four, just you know, hit some highlights here. So. He ends up working Diesel uh, for the IC title at SummerSlam 94, which was the first event at the new United Center in Chicago. He's got Walter Payton in his corner, which is just a freaking awesome moment as a Chicago Bears fan to see Walter Payton come out with Razor Ramon in the United Center. I mean, props to WWF for getting that one done. Um, Sean has a match with Razor a couple of weeks before that on Raw that you need to check out if you have not seen it. I hadn't seen it in years. Watched it again this morning. It's uh, August first, ninety four, Monday Night so Raw. Good. Yeah, and it it is a it's an opening match of the show, just an excellent one. It's the first time that Shawn Michaels had worked on television since WrestleMania ten. It's also the first match or the first WWE television since Vince McMahon was acquitted of the steroid, uh, you know, from the steroid trial. So Randy Savage is on commentary with Vince McMahon and. Savage really leans into this. He talks about, he says, he makes some comments about a hung jury a couple of times throughout the match. Uh, but, I mean, this this is a great one. From the opening moments, it's just high energy. Sean is bumping all over the place for Hall, making him, you know, the big dude look like a million bucks, just really letting Razor showcase himself. And in the end, you know, Razor gets outnumbered because diesel's out there with Shawn michaels and then they they cut to this SummerSlam report with todd pettengill back in the studio and he mentions that ramon might need to get some backup for SummerSlam. so he's hinting at what's about to happen and then it ends up being walter payton at SummerSlam. and then at SummerSlam, uh razor wins the ic title from diesel so uh any thoughts on any of that guys since i've been talking a little bit that 8-1 match, the Raw match, mm-hmm. I saw it in the chat, I believe, yesterday. So I was like, I have not seen this, or I don't remember watching it, and I did. Holy cow. And <laughs> I think the, I guess, something, we're going to backtrack again. Scott Hall, when he was in Kansas City, actually worked with Shawn Michaels a little bit. Mm-hmm. So they had developed a relationship a decade prior, and I remember 
Scott specifically saying that Sean was a baby face that was willing to bump like crazy. And Scott was a big guy who obviously was, we, we talked about him being too big to job, but too green to actually wrestle. So these two would actually go and work together just kind of like three, four, five hours a day in Kansas City, mind you. So the, the chemistry has always been there between the two. And it's something that you would see continuously throughout the decade as they had a feud in the WWF. And it showed in that match, which was outstanding. It also mm-hmm. led to the HBK Diesel breakup, of course, later yeah. on. So, yeah, fantastic match. Please go go see that. Here's a screenshot uh, up on the screen if you're watching the video from that match but yeah it's uh it's excellent so check it out if you haven't seen it uh so that was august 1st 94 mentioned the icy title victory at SummerSlam. there's a really good one this is a deep cut razor tags with one two three kid against sean again and diesel this aired on the the second edition of wwf action zone aired october 30th 94 uh, at the time, you know, like Action Zone eventually becomes mostly like a recap show and it's not on very long. But at that time, they were trying to make it must see television on it aired on Sunday mornings. And, you know, these are this is the click. It's it's the click tag. And it is a great one. Now, I know the first time I saw this, I had picked up off eBay in the late 90s, this Shawn Michaels video called like Hits from the Heartbreak Kid. And it was on there. It's like the second match on there. So if you want to you want to watch this, that video is actually on Peacock or the WWE Network. And so it's just a comp tape, but you go to the second match. And I remember watching this just being like blown away, the high energy that this match has. Uh, Dave Meltzer gave it four and a half stars in the Observer. I mean, that's a lot for a match that nobody really talks about, you know, action yeah. zone. Uh, but it, it's it's a really good one. So it is on the network. You can check it out if you've never seen it. I don't know if any of you have seen this one or not. I watched I it four hours ago. Yeah. It's a deep cut. Right? <laughs> Would you say it's oh a, it's, it's a, gosh, a deep yeah. cut? Is that it's uh, a total deep cut? Yeah. In okay. fact, um, in my so I wrote the article on SC Scoops, you know, and like all the the writers there on Slack, and I sent it out. All right, here it is. And one guy used that term, like, "Oh man, you got some deep cuts in here." I'm like, "Yeah, but this is this is his best work, man. This was the stuff people need to check out." You know um, what was amazing, Ryan? Was yeah. The pace, the first three to five minutes of the match were what you would expect for the end of the match. Like almost like a cruiserweight style match. Just I couldn't believe it. Even Kevin Nash, he was moving. He was he was moving like a cruiserweight himself. It was crazy. Yeah, Yeah, I remember, like I said, popping in that VHS over 20 years ago and like instantly being blown away (laughs) because that's not what you think out of WWF tags, especially with big guys like that. But it's super high energy. You got to check it out. So he has some great television matches, 94 to 95. You know, there's that one. Uh, then he works also opening match of Raw, just like the one against Sean in August, against Owen Hart, January 9th, 95. This is at the old Summit in Houston, Texas. And Houston, obviously, is a is a huge wrestling town. Always has been going, going way back as a territory. And this is just the crowd is super hot. Owen, again, is just like bumping all over for Razor. There's really not a down moment in this match. And the crowd is with him the whole way. Owen is like in the final days of his feud with Brett at this time. And Brett actually comes out in the finish and like costs Owen the match. Owen has Razor locked in the sharpshooter. So it's like Owen's going to win and Brett actually costs him the match. So (laughs) it's it's an interesting ending. But again, it's, it's super high paced. 
like I said, Owen bumping all over the pay- place, looking ra- making uh, Razor's offense just look incredible. Uh, bell to Bell, great wrestling town. Check this one out if you guys have have never seen it. I don't know if any of you checked it out or, or remember watching it at all, but it's one of my favorites, honestly. I yeah, I vaguely remember Razor Owen matches. Uh, I probably saw this at the time, just don't remember it. But um, I always remember them working well together. So I I don't doubt that it was a great match. I mean, you know, that was and that was the time too that Owen, you know, he was in the feud with Brett, uh, and he was getting elevated. You know, after uh, after years of uh, you know trying to figure out what to do with him, it's funny. I just covered to uh, plug my show a little bit. I just covered WrestleMania eight and uh, he worked Skinner that night in a one minute match. And I'm looking at that show and I'm saying, you couldn't find something better for him to do than friggin' Skinner. Like, <laughs> come on, <laughs> you know, if Kyle, if Kyle was here, you, you know how he would say Skinner. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do any gimmick infringements. <laughs> Skinner. I mean, you know, what's well, I, I, I know, I, I know Kyle was at least, at least once you get one out of me, but what's the matter with these freaking people? I freaking Skinner, <laughs> I fungal, get out of here, Skinner, spit that, tobacco in his face, the fuck out of here. Wasn't that the cool down before Hogan and Sid Justice? That's exactly what it was. That's exactly oh what gosh. it was. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, not for nothing, that show, not to digress, they align that show with their head up their ass. Looking at that <laughs> show. I love the show. Don't get me wrong. It's very rewatchable, but they align it with their head up their rear ends. So <laughs> fucking tobacco in his face. Give me a break. <laughs> so at 95 wise. All right. So he works against Jarrett at WrestleMania 11 and he had some pretty good matches with Jeff Jarrett over the years, especially in 95. But I don't know. It's it's for the IC title. Jarrett's the IC champion. It ends in a DQ because the roadie gets involved when Razor's got the match won. Uh, Kid is out there with Razor in his corner. It's an all right match, but it's just not real significant to his career. I mean, 95, what everyone would talk about, of course, would be the SummerSlam match. So we've, we've kind of touched on that. Um, now, Frank, you said you prefer this one to WrestleMania 10, and I, I said I got him neck and neck. So tell us why you like this one a little bit better. I think it was just the story between the two guys. You know, I was very intrigued to see how it was going to be handled, especially since Shawn Michaels has been put, had been pushed as a big baby face for a while. You know, it had been a a time since we saw those two in a ladder match, you know, a year and a half. And, uh, you know, back then a year and a half meant something. I mean, you know, now it's, it's a whole different ball game in the WWE, but uh, just to see how these two would match up and watching the match, seeing razor basically lean heel, you know, mm-hmm. because he was, and, and, and either one of them could have done it. Sean could have, uh, could have leaned heel if he wanted to, but I thought razor did as well. And it made me think that there could be a potential heel turn for razor. He had been a baby face for a while. So maybe they were trying to go in that direction. So I think the intrigue of it, I think I was more, into Shawn Michaels at this point. I I liked Shawn Michaels, but I think the on and off TV kind of made me detach from him a little bit in 94. So mm-hmm. I was a little more into his work. So I just think just seeing how the two would line up and just seeing what the out, because it, it's a match that I guess Shawn had a win, but Razor could have won too. You know, whereas 10, you knew Razor was going to win. 
You know, you knew that Sean wasn't going to uh, beat him. So I think there was a lot more intrigue. You know, I think move wise, I think bump wise, they're probably neck and neck. So I'm not, you know, this was better than this. This was better than that. I'm not, you know, um, but I think just storyline background wise was why I was a little bit more invested in 95 uh, than I was in 94. Okay. Not to, that, that, that does not take away what I thought in 94. I think it's an amazing match. I should backtrack a second, just mention like the lineage of the IC title, and then I'll go to you guys. So he had lost the title to Jared at the Rumble. They have the match at Mania. He doesn't win the title back. Uh, Razor ends up winning it back from Jared in a ladder match in May of 95 at a house show. So that would be the third time he won the Intercontinental title. And so then he's carrying it through the summer uh, to lose Deshaun here at SummerSlam. Okay, uh, Justin, go ahead. SummerSlam 95, your thoughts. I really can't add a whole lot to what Frank's already said. I mean, it's a you know really good match. Uh, to me, not as good as WrestleMania ten. When when would you have seen this one the first time? Um, boy, I am trying to remember if I, I must have gotten my hands on a uh, a rental somewhere. I don't know if that would have been in town or if I was maybe visiting some family and found it, but. I, it probably wouldn't have been around an, until 98, 99, that period. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't see it until I was tape trading in the late 90s because the video store closest to me in town that I always go to, they never had SummerSlam 95 for some reason. So I I didn't see it until I could tape trade for it. Uh, what about you, Jesse? When did you see this one for the first time and, and your thoughts? I watched it in real time. My, my cousin ordered every major pay-per-view that the WWF had and it started at WrestleMania six. He was big into wrestling and he would always invite me over. So I do remember watching this in real time and diesel and Mabel was the main event of SummerSlam 95. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Brett uh, works. Uh, Brett works your boy, Glenn Jacobs. Uh, Dr. Isaac Yankum. Isaac freaking mm-hmm. Yankum. Um, it's a total one match show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean uh, everything is exactly what you guys said i think from a preference standpoint i'm gonna side with the with the mania 10 and, and again but it's literally like apples and oranges both are great yeah uh he didn't by the way i know i said this single he didn't lose the title so sean was a t- was a champion going in right he had lost it to jared i think after he won it back like in may of 95 then he lost yeah. the title back to jared so yeah and then sean i think sean beats him at like an in your house or some crap like that in your house uh the lumberjacks i think was the event yeah Yeah, that's right yeah on that show uh razor teamed with savio vega against men on a mission also not a a great match to worth worth seeking (laughs) out but yeah so then he has the the shot at sean at SummerSlam. sean retains Mm -hmm. okay right so eventually, uh, Sean forfeits the title. You know, there's the fight in Syracuse and all of that. And then uh, Razor wins the IC title for a fourth time against uh, Shane Douglas, Dean Douglas at the time, in your house four, mm-hmm. to win his fourth IC title, which, uh, you know, was the record at the time. There never been a four time intercontinental champion. And I mean, these are the. 
these are the closing days of Razor's time with the WWF because he starts to feud with Goldust, which is pretty, I remember watching that in real time. That was pretty memorable. And of course, Goldust kind of stands out in your mind during, during that era and the stuff he was doing. But uh, Razor faces Goldust at Rumble 96 and he loses the title to Goldust after the one, two, three kid attacks him. There's the breakup. So Kid goes heel, and then Kid and Razor worked a crybaby match at the February 96 in your house. Not good. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's pretty cr- I think the match is okay, but it's pretty cringeworthy afterwards. How like, yeah, there's like a bottle and a bonnet and stuff, and they put it on on Kid, and then Kid's kind of like out of it, you know, he's loopy from the razor's edge, and then he kind of like wakes up and he realizes he's dressed as a baby and he starts crying and like Vince is on commentary. He's crying. Look at him. He's crying. I mean, just not your, <laughs> not your best period in the, in the, uh, in the world wrestling federation. So he was then razor was supposed to go on to have a rematch for the IC title at WrestleMania against Goldust, And that was going to be a Miami street fight. But he gets suspended by the WWF for drug use. He's out six weeks. And instead, Goldust, of course, has the the fight, not really a match, with Roddy Piper, the backlot brawl. Instead, that was a replacement because Razor couldn't work the show. And he returns. He has a match at April's In Your House where he loses to Vader. And then he's pretty much off TV. Like, there's the click incident at, at MSG, the house show. In May, and I mean, then he's on his way to WCW. So, I mean, outside of losing the title to Goldust, not much really happens for Razor Ramona in early 96. And, you know, Kyle had in the notes here, why do we think that the company never made him a world champion? And, you know, if Diesel didn't get that opportunity, would he have been next in line? Because you had Brett, you know, at the top of the pecking order. Then you had Sean. Would he have been, you know, that third guy? Um, I don't feel like it ever really was in place for him to be pushed that direction, like where it would make sense for him to become world champion. He won the IC championship so many times. Um, I think the, the just the promotion didn't really have confidence in him to put him in that spot because of his issues behind the scenes. I think that's kind of kind of the story, too. Um, but, but what do you guys think about that? Like, do you think he should have been a world champion during this period? Do you think it could have been rationalized? Uh, any any of you feel free to jump in at this point. Any thoughts on that? The roster at the time, you could have pulled the trigger pretty easy. I'm looking at it right now as we speak, and I think from the main event level, there wasn't much. But again, I think maybe they were caught in the mystique of like the Hogan, the Warrior, just that that title reign from like what we're we looking at eighty four to ninety one, ninety two, and just the Mm -hmm. big guys and now transitioning to your workers like Bret Hart became, became the flag bearer from 93 and 94. I mean, Yokozuna had a title run in there too. Lex Luger, obviously that was a failed experiment, but I, I, gosh, this is just so indescribable. This was probably the only time to pull the trigger. I felt that he could have done it, but you mentioned that suspension, I guess I'll ask you guys this question. Was there was there something in that six-month period prior to that suspension that kind of led you to believe that he had some issues behind the scenes that could have, you know, kind of blackballed him from getting a world title? 
I mean, not that I'm super aware of. I mean, like he was going out partying all the time with the click, but you know, Sean was getting the push. Sean was the hot name. Like he had been you know, yeah. arguably the best worker in the world for a couple of years, or at least in North America, I should say at that point. So, I mean, I think they were going with Sean. And so it just didn't make sense to go to Scott there. Like it, it would have made some sense when Diesel got the opportunity, I feel like, but they went with Diesel instead. And that was probably, you know, like kind of the moment maybe. And Michaels didn't get the run till 96 either. So you had that time in, in 95 when you were pushing him to his third or his fourth intercontinental title. Why not mm-hmm. get him, elevate him to that world title shot? You even could have had a built-in feud with either Brett or Diesel for him to take that title. Yeah, because they went from SummerSlam 94 where he wins the IC title from Diesel. And then, you know, like that fall... Diesel's getting the world title instead, you know. Right. So I guess you could have like, you, if you were rebooking it, you could have flipped that outcome. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, like he he wins the IC title, Diesel's out, and then Diesel goes on to where they have the split with Sean, and he becomes the world champion. So I mean, like that, he was a face, just like Diesel became a face. So like that baby face, that could have been a time where he pulled the trigger. But then I mean that. By the middle of 95, you're getting Deshaun on the rise, so it doesn't really make sense at that point. So I think, yeah, probably coming out of coming out of uh, like the summer of 94, that would have been the moment, but they went to Diesel. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I've often thought recently, in recent times anyway, you know, how come Razor didn't get uh, a run at the world title? But it's funny that back then, I really didn't think about it. Like him being in the IC title picture for most of his run pretty much made sense. I mean, I don't know if they were thinking that, okay, you know, he's the flag bearer for the division. He can work, you know, with those guys that are contending for the IC title. You know, we're going to go ahead with Diesel, who, let's be honest, Vince loves his big guys, you know, and he had a presence about him. Mm -hmm. And Diesel fit more of what a world champion is to Vince you know, than Razor Ramon did. So that's probably why I never really thought about it. I don't know. Well, I was about to say if a gimmick could be someone that could be a main eventer, but you got Diesel as a main eventer. So that kind of kills that argument. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, they might not have thought that the Razor Ramon gimmick could have been, you know, something that they present at the top of the card, you know, as opposed to this guy who's, you know, nearly seven feet tall, 300 pounds, you know, Diesel, he can present as our world champion, you know, and, and that's that's what the WWF has always been about, uh, even to this day. So I'll tell you this, you know, if Razor Ramon, if we teleport him to the roster split, I mean, he's a multi-time world champion at oh, this yeah. point already. I mean, <laughs> hands down. I mean, yeah. he's leading, he's leading, he's leading SmackDown in the 2000s and uh, possibly Raw these days. So, you know, he would have been one of those guys, your Batistas, your Edges, your Kurt Angles, you know, whatever, guys that benefited Randy Orton, guys that benefited from the roster split these days. Razor Ramon would have totally benefited. So um could have worked because what would have happened was, I mean, if you think about it. Razor was a very over babyface in 94. So you mm-hmm. could have made him the world champion. You could have made Diesel the babyface IC champion, let people fall in love with Diesel. And if that works, then you move Diesel up. Because that was usually the formula then. You know, you made a babyface the IC champ, you let people fall in love with them, and then you move them up to the world title. 
you know, so what they did with Savage, what they did with Warrior, etc. So could have worked, but I think the way they went was uh, was what was to be expected and fine. I mean, you know, Razor was a was a big guy, but he wasn't as big as as Nash. And so Adam mentioned in the chat, did Diesel sell merchandise? Could that have been a factor? Was Razor merch big sellers? I don't I don't know the numbers offhand, but I do know that Razor sold a good amount of merchandise and. I wouldn't be surprised if Razor sold more because some of that merch he had in that era, especially like the yellow and white where this face is really big, that Uzi Machismo t-shirt, that's like was a huge seller. And that's still a hot shirt today if you can get your hands on it. And we all know that Diesel became, during that period, the worst drawing world champion the company had ever had. And, you know, the company was down. I'm not sure anyone would have done great, but could Razor have done better? We'll never know. I think I think you could make a strong argument that he could have. Now, we're about to transition to WCW and this conversation's, you know, probably going to be a lot more brief because as far as like classes, classic matches, there's not as many. It's more just a broad discussion about the NWO and its importance. But Justin, before we get into that, let me ask you this question. Do you think he should have been a world champion in WCW? No. By the time he could have been, his issues had gotten the better of him. I mean, yeah. you know, if he had, hadn't had all those issues, give every Jeff Jarrett world title reign to Scott Hall, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, you know, he, you can't put him over, you know, Hogan and Sting and probably Savage for those first few years. And yeah, like I said, by the, by the time he could have had a shot, time had passed. Yeah, he he personally wise, yeah, he was having a, a hard time, like a year into the NWO run and then basically towards the end of his career, like it was constant issues. And he had, we mentioned the suspension, he'd had problems in WWF, but WCW is where it got out of hand. I think from a booking standpoint, when you just look at the characters, couple of years into that run i mean he was he was still a hot name i think you can rationalize it from that perspective but yeah knowing what was going on behind the scenes it's it's pretty difficult to do so but when he arrives in wcw i mean it's it's hard to forget that moment i mean i remember watching the show on memorial day when he walked out and it was just like it was like a reality television moment because you knew him as Razor Ramon. He still talked like Razor Ramon, but he, he was wearing like denim. But he comes out on WCW Nitro and, you know, the famous, you know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. Quote, here's a picture of him that night on Nitro. And, you know, I mentioned that was Memorial Day. And so he's going to be bringing in more guys. And at the Great American Bash, Kevin Nash shows up and he power bombs Eric Bischoff through the stage. You know, pretty memorable. So you got May... Hall shows up, June, Nash is there, and then they got the Bash at the Beach match, and the Outsiders, uh, early July of 96. So it's it's Hall and Nash and their mystery partner taking on Lex Luger, taking on Sting, and taking on Randy Savage. And it's a pretty good match, I mean, overall. it's He had better matches in the ring before this, but of course, just historical significance with the heel turn of Hulk Hogan and the formation of the NWO afterwards. This is, I mean, I wrote my article today, like when you had Hall show up, that was like the little, that was the spark, you know, and then Nash shows up and then the momentum is building. And when Hogan joins, that's like the fire has been lit. And I mean, it literally ignited a boom period. 
WWF in 96 wasn't quite to their boom period. I mean, they, they started turning the corner in 97, but 96 is when wrestling clicked again. I mean, this was the first time that I remember anyone at school talking about pro wrestling <laughs> since I was very young. I mean, the NWO shirts, I'm wearing one right now. They were everywhere. It was like, I'm in junior high at this point and people got wrestling posters up in their lockers. And I, as a longtime wrestling fan, I could hardly believe what I was seeing at school. I remember people wearing that red and black outsider shirt at school. And honestly, of all of them, Hogan was older. Obviously, Kyle had a, a note in our notes that, you know, Hall and Nash made Hogan cool again. And that's 100% true. But if you looked at the three of them, Hall was the coolest by far. Mm -hmm. Just the way he carried himself, the way he talked his style he'd wear the bandanas like during that era like just he looked like a million bucks and he was the guy that made it cool i think and everyone i knew at school hall was the one that everyone liked and so i mean this was just a high point of his career he was a huge deal and wrestling was on fire and he was crucial you know to that happening and so you know eventually he's going to have the tag team title runs with kevin nash as the outsiders throughout his time there he's going to win the united states title and everything uh, personally, unfortunately, things are going to go downhill, but as far as like his career goes, 96, 97, that's, that's the high point because that's when the most eyeballs were on him. That's when he was making the most money. Um, he said he didn't go to WCW for the money. He went because he could get some days off because the WWF schedule was so brutal. I'm sure the money didn't hurt matters, well, but I'm, yeah, go ahead. Justin. Well, I was going to say, you know, speaking, they created this hot angle that set the entire world on fire. You're talking about people in, you know, your high school, you know, wearing wrestling gear, which hadn't been seen in, <laughs> you know, how long, but not only that, as far as the money goes, you know, him and Nash changed the entire industry by getting guaranteed money. Yeah. You know, that might be his biggest contribution to professional wrestling. Absolutely. Now your guys' thoughts, uh, you know, just, NWO, NWO formation, those early days of the NWO, what you remember uh, in your life at the time, Jesse, you're just north of, of Justin and I up in Minnesota. I mean, what was, what was it like to be a wrestling fan in the summer and fall of 96 up there? I was in heaven. It Hulk Hogan turning heel was mind blowing to me at that time. And we mentioned that Hall and Nash made him cool. They absolutely did. I think the one thing that, unfortunately, and this is something that you're seeing a little bit now with factions, is Hogan, specifically. They, this was designed, eventually became designed to keep him the leader at the top of the food chain when there were a couple of guys in his stable that were worthy of that same exact, same, same exact spot. So, but unfortunately, they're relegated to tag team duty in a faction mm -hmm. because Hogan, again, with the politics and always wanting to be on top, never wanting to do jobs. Unfortunately, that that just became kind of that mo for the next two years, and ultimately led to the downfall of WCW. But however, back to the fandom. Oh my gosh, I mean the. The, the merchandise I remember around my high school, I started to see it, I think maybe early 97, just absolutely incredible. And for me being a lifetime pro wrestling fan, I was like, where were you guys during the dark years? Mm, exactly. It's kind of like when you like a band that nobody talks about and then they, they blow up 
you know, and then everyone's liking them. And it's just like, hey, where were you guys now? Okay, now I can bring out my wrestling shirts and it's cool to wear them at school. You guys would all made fun of me before, you know. Um, it's kind of that thing where I was just having this discussion. Everyone listening to the show knows I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. And when you talk to other Bruce Springsteen fans, like John Alba, he was on the show a couple of months ago. He's a massive Springsteen fan. And in the Springsteen fandom, like it's cool to hate on born in the USA because that's the album where Bruce like blew up. Right. And everyone's like, where were you for these past albums kind of thing? So I'm not going to like born in the USA, but like, you got to admit, Born in the USA is a really good album. <laughs> if, you, if you're criticizing Born in the USA, you're just, you're trying to be contrarian in my view. But I, I understand why people do that because it's the ki- same kind of thing. Like, where were you a couple of years ago? But like, I had to drink it all in. You know, I saw guys wearing wrestling shirts that would have never talked to me about wrestling two years earlier. But I'm like, all right, I'm going to talk about it because I've never had anyone to talk about pro wrestling with at school before and it lasted for a couple of years and then the wwf got hot and then people were switching to the wwf but the nwo is what changed the ball game you know i mean it was you were seeing wcw shirts at school way before wwf shirts you know during that it was just nwo shirts everywhere that's all all i saw for like a year until the austin 316 thing happened so um yeah go ahead uh i guess austin 316 was kind of happening similar like same time period summer 96 but his merchandise didn't really kick in until like 97 and where people were were wearing it at the same time uh frank your memories of that period well i remember so i had started the uh, the job that i mentioned i started um working at kennedy and um my manager who uh had just come back like he had been out for a while and you know, came back and uh, he introduced himself to me, you know, it turned out we were the same age and we were wrestling fans. So I'm like, Oh, cool. You know? So I was working on a Sunday. He was off. He actually made it a point to call me at work. All right. I was working the desk and uh, he's like, Frankie, you'll never believe who turned bad. I'm like, Ooh, you know, he's like Hogan. I'm like, I literally stopped for a second. I said, what do you mean Hulk Hogan? Now I knew he had been a heel in the past, but I was so accustomed and used to, like all of us, him being a baby face, you know? And I just remember being so blown away that how could a guy who's been a perpetual hero, you know, for so long, you know, not, you know, we know about him now, so he's not much of a hero. But anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how could that actually work? And um, I remember it, and I'll give a shout out to my friend Justin Girardi, who's probably listening. He covered Bash at the Beach with me on uh, Then and Now last year. And um, it's funny that it actually didn't hook us in right away. He got hooked in a little bit later because guys like Kurt Henning were getting added. And uh, I think at the time, the Macho Man, I forgot who else he mentioned. And that's about the same time that I started really getting hooked. Not that I didn't start watching WCW a little bit more, but it didn't grab me right away. It was as the NWO started growing. And then they brought Piper in later to feud with Hogan and things like that. So... Uh, that's when I really got hooked. But, you know, even my uncle who had stopped watching, actually, he had stopped watching regularly around Rumble 93. He would get the pay-per-views if I wanted to watch it, but he stopped watching because he could not stand Yokozuna winning the Royal Rumble. That was his thing. So (laughs) that's what killed him. It actually started getting him. We started getting pay-per-views again at his house. We'd get WCW pay-per-views. So it kind of shifted the tide. But... You know, one thing, and I don't think we give enough credit to it, all of this probably doesn't work without Scott. 
you know, cutting that promo, coming out on uh, coming out on uh, on Nitro and interrupting that match, and you know all the promos that he cut talking about the big man coming. We got a surprise. We got a third man. I don't think it works without Scott. I don't. I don't see Kevin Nash being capable of doing that. So Mm-mm. Scott was really the catalyst uh, behind it all. But it's funny, and I didn't really think about this until watching the DVD. You 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 mentioned jump in on the uh, yeah, there he is. Um, he wanted to go to WCW for the time off. I wonder if that was actually a negative for him because mm-hmm. he had mentioned clean as a sheet that. My life was miserable at home, and I prefer to be on the road. So I wonder if going to WCW actually drove more of a dagger into his personal life. Because not for nothing, I'm sorry, you guys could disagree with me. His WCW run was a pile of shit. Outside yep. of the runs with with Kev as, as champ, there was nothing memorable. By the way, a little – well, not really much of a digression. Those angles with him coming out like drunk and stuff like that, was that actually because re- that that was a time where you know we were tickling the line between is this reality is this not I mean it a lot of that looked real and, they booked um, it like that unfortunately it, yeah mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. it's and again you wonder if that even drove more of a dagger into his life so yeah. I would argue his going to WCW was probably the worst thing for him had he stayed in the WWF who knows what is uh, what his life might have been. You know, if it might have been a little bit better, but was what it was. That was an interesting time period because you had Road Warrior Hawk in a similar angle in the WWF with the alcohol and just mm-hmm. bringing the real life issues to a head just wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah, that was awful. It was awful. And, and, and you know, and listen, I understand wrestling. I understand selling tickets. I understand stories and everything like that. But there were just lines you just don't cross. You, you, there were just, you know, and, and something like that. I'm sorry. You, you just don't, uh, you don't introduce that to TV. So, you know, there. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I agree with you, Frank. It's not, outside of the tag title runs, it's not the most memorable period of his career outside of just the initial arrival. You know, eventually the NWO played itself out. He was very quotable doing the survey and stuff. One of the problems with that though, is that, you know, he would do the survey and everyone would boo WCW and they kind of like train the fans to not like WCW. And then eventually the company goes out of business. You know, yeah. they didn't really like plan for that, but they made everyone think all the WCW guys are a bunch of geeks, but that's the company. Mm. So what are you doing like long term? You know, and so there's there's big negatives of this run, not just the substance abuse issues. The NWO, I think, eventually just damaged the company in the long run. It lit it on fire initially in a good way, and it lit it on fire in a bad way in the long term. I will tell you this, right? I will argue this till the day I go six feet in the ground. It was their greatest asset and their biggest liability. They didn't know how to end the angle. There was a point in time where it was time to put the NWO to rest, and they never did. They tried to split it up. And I'll admit, I got sucked into the wolf pack. I bought the shirts. I thought it was cool and everything like that. Looking back, it was the biggest mistake. And they just kept bringing <laughs> it back over and over and over. The NWO 2000, mm-hmm. you know, all, all these iterations of the end. Then, then they put the two factions together at the end of the year with the stupid finger poke. And it, it, it's, you know, yeah, they, they just didn't know how to, uh, they just didn't know how to get away from it. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, a lot, lot of problems 
long term. Uh, you know, with Hogan too, like he wanted the outsiders split up, and that wasn't good for them. Uh, Nash, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that, by the way. That that's interesting. Kyle has this in his notes, and you know, Nash wanted to be world champion more than Hall did, and you know, the substance abuse problems that we've mentioned. So starts out about as good as possible and it ends very badly but for a for a while there it was such a fun time to be a fan justin you've talked about you know going over your girlfriend's house at the time and they were all watching nitro and you couldn't believe like a girl you were dating their family watched wrestling together i mean that tells you how popular the nwo helped usher in this period of of, of a boom period right Justin? yeah your thoughts tell a 12 year old justin joint that you know in just five years, he'd be sitting with a girl watching professional wrestling. <laughs> this does not happen. This is not heaven. Life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if you're looking for some stuff to watch from his WCW run, like as far as great matches, it's pretty few and far between. It's more just like moments on television that you would watch. But of course, you got to watch Bash at the Beach 96. Um, there, War Games 96 at uh, Fall Brawl, September 96. You got Arn Luger, Flair, and Sting taking on Hogan, Nash, the NWO Sting, and Scott Hall. Um, that's a pretty good match. Uh, Slamboree 97, Nash, Hall, and Six. So Waltman's there at this point taking on uh, Piper Flair and the NFL's Kevin Green. That's a pretty good match. Uh, Luger and Hall had a decent one in uh, January of 97. I believe that was at a Clash of the Champions. And, uh, you know, like there's some various tags with, with him and Nash that are decent. Like I remember them, uh, Luger and against Luger and the giant, they had a couple of good matches. They wrestled Harlem heat at, um, havoc 96. That match was decent, but it's like his best matches are that initial WWF run. But then ironically, he's the biggest star during the NWO era. So if you want to see his best ring work, you'll watch the earlier stuff. If you want to see him at his biggest point of stardom, you know, this is, this is the time period. It ends bad, of course. WCW goes out of business. Comes back to the WWF briefly with the NWO incarnation there. Works Steve Austin at WrestleMania 18. Not nothing to write home about there. You know that's a that's a pretty frustrating match to watch. And yeah, right, go ahead, Ryan. Right, uh, I want you to add your, the tidbit you had in your article, where like obviously he had his issues, uh, his. Uh, WWE run was very bad, but but tell the fine folks that this great wrestling mind who he put over in Japan in 2001. Oh, yeah, yeah. So 2001, he does this brief tour of Japan and he sees one of the young boys and he's like, I think that kid has something. I want to put him over tonight. And it's you know kind of similar to what he did for Waltman back in 93. Uh, so the match is very brief. It's like four or five minutes. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty much got this young boy beat. And then uh, he gets on the microphone and he talks about uh, who does he challenge? He talks about who he wants to work. Muda. And yeah, it's Muda. Yeah, it's Keiji Muda. This is uh this is I'm coming for you. And then up from behind, the young boy rolls him up and pins him. And it's none other than Hiroshi Tanahashi. So that's that's a cool one to watch back. Now you can find it on YouTube. I think it just wow. says you search Ray's or uh, Scott Hall versus Young Boy, New Japan, but it's Tanahashi, you know, really early in his career. There's one more that we haven't mentioned. Yeah. November 3rd of 1997. Scott Hall lines up for his finisher, and Chris Jericho wiggles out of it, rolls him into a small package. One, 
two, three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he the guy over Chris he, Jericho. He never had a problem putting over guys. You know, like that's how he was different from the click. I think sometimes maybe he didn't do it in the most uh sincere way, but you know, he would always put over guys. He didn't he never bitch bitch about a, a finish or anything like that. So yeah. I almost forgot to uh to mention that, Justin. Glad for pointing pointing that out. First I was like, where's he going with this? Oh yeah. Yeah, the Tanahashi deal. So all in all in all in the end we just want to give an overview that you know kind of the high points he did work by the way ecw briefly a uh, couple of couple of shots with ecw um he came out just into the fujis in wc or ecw if you remember that ready or, ready not, or not by the fujis which was pretty awesome but uh yeah i mean that's pretty much his career where i'm not i don't really want to dwell on the negatives i don't want to talk about the causes of his death and what happened there i think everyone has probably read that online by now but i wanted this to be kind of more uh, you know a celebration of his life the guy always had great theme music by the way the razor ramon mm-hmm. theme is a great one of course the nwo theme the Wolfpack theme all of those were great great songs so i mean rest in peace scott hall just a just an icon of wrestling it was hard to not root for the guy as a kid growing up he was the exact kind of person you wanted to watch on tv when you were a teenager i think the um, the number of guys in professional wrestling who have actually transcended, you know, this great sport that we love, that's a pretty small list. But like when it was announced that he was, you know, on life support, I got a text message from a buddy of mine who does not watch wrestling, did not watch wrestling, you know, during the boom periods in the mid nineties. He only knew it from me. But he he sent me a picture of him with a toothpick in his mouth, <laughs> and, and, it was Dude, even, how, and and I was even like, "Hey, yo, Razor!" And that's <laughs> like, "Oh, do I have the wrong person?" <laughs> I thought it was Scott Hall, you know, something like yeah. that. Like, he he transcended professional wrestling. Yeah. Like, ha- when have you guys ever put a toothpick in your mouth and not thought of Razor Ramon? Because like every time I've ever done that in my life, it comes through my mind. I mean, how can you not? Right? Like everyone's imitated that. I used to tease my father because uh, he always had a toothpick in his mouth himself. And uh, so when Razor made his debut, I think I brought him over to the table. I'm like, Dad, this could be your favorite wrestler because he's always coming in the ring <laughs> with a freaking toothpick. And my father was fa- – he'd leave toothpicks all over the house. He used to drive my mother crazy. I said, there you go. There's your guy. He's like, oh, yeah, look at that. <laughs> so. Jesse, I saw you nodding your head. Just two of the most transcendent moments in pro wrestling history was the first pay-per-view ladder match and then him joining or going to WCW and forming the NWO. He was the head of both that alone should make him lauded Hall of Famer, all of the above, outside of everything that we've talked about for the last hour and 50 minutes. One thing I, don't I think want to add. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't think we did. We mention the MSG moment. The click? I briefly mentioned the click incident okay. happened in May, but okay. I glossed over it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that too. I mean, that changed the course of the industry too, because, you know, we know that Triple H was going to win the King of the Ring and he doesn't do it. And so it's Steve Austin. And then boom, Steve Austin takes off, you know, another accident. So he's, yeah, he's part of that as well. Uh, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Almost two hours talking about the life of Razor Ramon. It lived up to my expectations. One of the last things I wanted to jump in before before we close out, you know, a lot of people say The Undertaker is the greatest gimmick of all time, and he probably is, 
I don't think we should ignore how great of a gimmick Razor Ramon was, you know, because mm-hmm. the more you, you think about his time and the more you think about what he did, uh, especially during his WWF days, that was a pretty de- and it was a gimmick that really put him on the map. So let let us not forget the uh, the success uh, of that gimmick, and gimmicks are always hard to get over. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, hundred percent. R.I.P. the medium sized main. There you go. There you go. Uh, Guys, I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, but I want you to sign off. Mention everything you got in the works. Promote your stuff, your social media, like we always do with guests. Uh, Let me throw it to Jesse first. And also, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. It's long overdue. I've been wanting to have you here on the pod for a long time, so I'm glad that this worked out. Scott Hall, I could talk about him all day. Apparently, we did, so... (laughs) (laughs) DAJVShow24 on Twitter. Wrestling You and You on Twitter is where you can find my podcast, which Frank will be joining me next week. Nice. Yes, I look forward to that, sir. Very yeah. much look forward to it. We're, we're going to be drawing that up and having it ready to go for you tomorrow and, of course, for the rest of you out there in podcast land on Tuesday. Uh, let's see. Daily DDT. I contribute there a couple times a month, writing articles primarily for AEW because that's pretty much my my sweet spot at the moment and that's where you can find me very good thank you sir frank what do you got going on yeah so you mentioned uh with uh, pwtorch.com i do the uh, aew dynamite and rampage primers i just posted uh the dynamite primer for tomorrow night so check that out and uh pro wrestling then and now over on the torch vip network ryan you'll be joining me uh this saturday we'll be looking back at uh, wrestlemania 13 uh, as uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin makes his way to this WrestleMania, we'll look at his biggest WrestleMania moment of all time uh, in the match against Bret Hart. So uh, very much look forward to that. And the rest of the month will be uh, WrestleMania lookbacks, uh, a couple of co-host choice episodes that I like to do once in a while. Uh, one of my co-hosts will be looking at WrestleMania 15 with me and then WrestleMania 2000. So not the greatest WrestleManias <laughs> in the world, but... Frank, you want to torture yourself. uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, you know what? 15, I remember seeing live. uh, 2000, I never did. I know it's not one of the more regarded manias, but uh, I'm interested in the talking points to see what they were trying to do. There's plenty to talk about, yeah. Yeah, and and how badly they failed. So it'll be fun. (laughs) Justin Joint, my longtime co-host. Thank you for this discussion, sir. What do you got going on this week? Anything? Uh, actually, I just, the other thing I think we might've forgotten, uh, by far and away, and I don't think it's even close, Scott Hall with the greatest hall of fame speech of all time. Absolutely. Yeah. He, it was, it was brief, but to the point and so good. And like one of the most memorable closing lines ever. So two time hall of famer. That's my plug. I'm plugging Scott Hall. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right guys so you can uh find us on social media if you've been watching the the video feed we've got all of our usernames for twitter along the bottom you can find the show it is at top rope nation you can support us on patreon like i said at the beginning of the show bonus content dropping over there all the time that is the number one way to support top rope nation and of course join the facebook group the facebook group has those links every week to our AEW Dynamite watch parties, which are so much fun. We'd love to have you join us over on the Playback app for that. Uh, we'll be checking back next week with Top Rope Nation Classics, WrestleMania 3, exclusively for patrons. Teaser will be here on the main feed. So stay tuned for that. 
Have a great week. Have a great weekend. Rest in peace, Scott Hall. You will be missed. Everyone out there, take care. Now that I escape, sleep, walk away. Those who correlate know the world they kick. Jail bars ain't golden gates. Those who fake, they break. When they meet their 400 pound mate, if I could rule the world, everyone would have a gun in the ghetto, of course, when get the up and on their horse. Kick around, drinking moonshine. I pour a sip on the concrete. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.